in the last verse of Psalm 119, V, as we just sang, it says, Seek me, your sheep, who's gone astray, for I, your servant, know your word. And in one sense, every time we open God's word, what we're actually opening is the seeking of the shepherd to us, his sheep, who go astray. Of course, that could be in varying degrees of astray and walking away, but even those who are most faithful, we understand that we need God's word daily. We need his pursuit. We need the shepherd's care. And so even now, as we open our word, to God's word to James, if you would turn to James chapter 4, that's found on page 1290. So even as we turn to James chapter 4, we realize this is the pursuit of God to his sheep to a sheep who can stray, to a sheep who need his word. And we see that in the content of what James writes, as we will read verses 1 through 12 from James chapter 4. Before we read, let's bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we acknowledge and confess that where we open your word and read it, we are hearing the words of our, our Father, the words of our Shepherd, that we are to listen, that we are to be the obedient and humble sheep to come calling at the Father's word, at their shepherd's word. And we pray that we would do that here now, even as James points out sins in our lives and using language that, that hurts, and yet offering as well that pursuit of the shepherd, the love that he has for his, his lost sheep, his sheep in general. And we pray that we would be encouraged that we would respond in obedience to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? ascends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and to our lives. There's a humorous, fictitious account told about fighting in a marriage. In this fake account, 
It says, three weeks after her wedding day, Joanna called her minister in hysterics. Pastor, she cried, John and I had our first fight. It was awful. What am I going to do? Calm down, Joanna, her pastor answered, leaning back in his chair. This isn't nearly as bad as you think. Every marriage has to have its first fight. It's natural. I know, I know, Joanna said impatiently. But what am I going to do with the body? Now, of course, the humor is evident there. What's evident about it is that the first fight in a marriage doesn't result in murder. We all know that. That's not how it goes. And yet, what's rather chilling, and what removes the humor from that little story, is if you were to just replace the timetable, if you were just to replace the first fight and how quickly they were married in that, in that those few weeks, and instead it's a few years and it's their 10,000th fight, all of a sudden this is not funny at all and all too close to reality. Even if it's not in bodily murder and how that results, there's a process of murder there nonetheless. There's a process of quarreling. There's a process of strife, of conflict and friction. Well, that's what James is talking about to his own congregation, to his own audience. To them, this isn't their first fight. And the pastor, James, here isn't saying, it's okay, everyone quarrels for a little bit. No, he is saying that that's not the correct pattern. This is a murderous pattern of life. This is wrong. This is dangerous. In this passage, James asks his audience about their quarreling. He asks, what causes it? What causes your fights? What causes this animosity? What causes this discord in the body of Christ? What causes this pain when there should be fellowship? What causes this anger where there should be love? And here James very insightfully, and we could say quite painfully to us, reveals our heart, reveals what we do, and reveals the level in which our sin sinks and what it makes us. James, as we've gone through this book, we've, we've seen repeatedly, he continues to call his audience beloved brothers. Beloved brothers. It continues to, to repeat itself. That's almost how he begins every section, that term of endearment. And here, how does he refer to the people? He calls them murderers. And he calls them adulterers. And we can ask, is this accurate? Is that a real problem? Is James going over the top here? And so our first point we'll look at is our problems. Our points today are our problems. Our second point are their causes. And the third point is the solution. The problem, the cause, and the solution. What are their problems? Well, verse 1 brings it right out front. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he answers it. Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. And right there you can stop and say this is a radically different concept than what we normally follow. This is a radically different concept than what we're normally told and, and taught. Even when we receive counseling and the world wants to give counseling, where does it go? It goes to, oh, well, you, you, were, you were misused, you were mishandled, you were sinned against. All that may be true, but James doesn't go to that. James doesn't allow his people to hide or run. He goes, what causes these quarrels? What causes these fights among you? Is it not this? Now your passions are at war within you. It's you. It's your passions. It's your desires that are at war within you. He puts it right on them, right on the perpetrators, and he calls them all perpetrators. 
This is what's causing these divisions. This is what's causing these problems. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Does this not describe the human heart? Does this not describe our hearts to varying degrees? It's actually quite insightful that James goes all the way to murder. He speaks in that very dramatic term. He just goes to what this is, and it covers the whole spectrum. This is Jesus' own teaching. Jesus talked about murder and said that the, the one who calls his brother a fool, the one who gets angry at his brother, he has murdered his brother. And so he covers everything from the, the angry word, even the angry thought against someone, all the way up to the murder itself. Because we can ask, well, were the, the church, was the church then actually murdering each other? Well, who knows? Is it really that, that crazy to think that perhaps there was instances where there was bodily harm caused by one towards another and quarrels and anger? No, we don't actually have to answer that because James is covering the spectrum of murderous sin. What is murder? Well, murder is when you are angry and upset and, and hate someone else. And that can come about in just an unguarded word and frustration, and that can come about when you take a weapon and destroy someone. But it is all murder of an image-bearer of God. And so he says, it is your passions, it is your desires. He says, you covet and cannot obtain. Describing jealousy there. You are jealous of others. You want what others have. You want other things, and you cannot obtain it, so you're irritable. And you're frustrated, and so you fight, and you quarrel. James uses this language to express the horror. He says that the fighting is what murder is, and it's our passions, and it's our desires, and it's that we want something, and we covet, and we fight, and we quarrel. What a reflection of the human heart. The cause of this sin can be as simple as jealousy being jealous of one another, being jealous of the wealth of another, being jealous of the intelligence of the other, of the position of the other, of the children of another, of the marriage of another. It can be, and I think this is actually really where you get at the heart of it, it can just be the jealousy when someone else has, has quarreled with you, spoken against you, and so you're angry with that person. And you fight back. And how do we fight back in that way? Well, generally, it's not just to go up to that person and, and pick a fight. Usually what we do is we poison the waters around them. We speak to others. We say, you know, I really can't stand that person. You know what he said? You know what he did? You see how this, this very dangerous cocktail of sin could destroy a church and while James is addressing it as he is? What causes these things? You see, we make the mistake of thinking that James is just exaggerating to prove a point. He's not doing that. He's not just exaggerating to prove a point. What we've done in that instance is rather we've diminished our own sin. We've diminished what we do to, to take it out of the realm of it's not that bad, it's not that murderous, it's just quarrels, it's just fights, it's spats. We all have them, no. The reality is it's murderous. We can't diminish that. We can't think James is going too far here. He's just trying to prove a point. It's hyperbole. We're far, far too willing to tolerate feuds in our own families, to tolerate anger and frustrations, to tolerate bitterness. 
We're far too willing to do that in our churches. Eh, shrug our shoulders. It happens. Not everyone gets along. This interpersonal strife James has no allowance for, no tolerance for. This is, after all, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the saints. Should it be marked and characterized by quarrels and trials and striving? These are brothers and sisters, perhaps even literal, perhaps even siblings in the church, in the family. You fight and you covet and you're jealous, you quarrel. We nurture rivalry and fighting for years at times. I think some of the ways we do that is actually just by avoiding it. That person that you just walk around, that maybe you'll say hi to, but you don't really want to talk to. You see, that's the same thing. And you're going to think, oh, how can that be murder? You don't care about that person. You have no use for that person. As As far as you were concerned, they might as well not even be there. They could just go and you'd be happy with that. You're happy when they're not there, when they're on vacation, when they're gone. Murderous. Quarreling silently. Maybe we could call it passive-aggressive. You see, purposeful ignoring is a part of murder in this sense. See how expansive this is? What can cause these fights and quarrels and angers? We are experts in them. We're experts at choosing our methods of attack well. Knowing how to really inflict pain on the other person. Fires between spouses, fires between children and parents, fires between local churches, fires in the church itself. Much of the lives of elders and the work of office bearers is putting out such quarrels. We're not exempt from that. No church is. And so James is speaking to his congregation who have this problem, who are likely, as we've seen in the past, using their tongue to disadvantage others. They're misusing their tongue, who are likely, as in the previous section we looked at, not using the wisdom from heaven, but rather the devilish, hellish knowledge and using that. Those who have problems, and we see that wealth is one of them. There's conflict between the rich and the poor in James' congregation. They have trials and struggles against the world and against each other. They're going through a lot, and this is what he says. What's causing these things? And it's not their circumstances. He doesn't say what causes these fights. Well, it's the other person. And he doesn't say what causes these quarrels. It's the persecution that you're facing. He doesn't say that. It's on our own passions. It's on our own heart. It's on the fact that we want, we want our own name to be praised. We want our own status. When someone might besmirch that, when someone might mar that, we quarrel and fight. So that's our problems. Our problems are this quarreling and strife and murder and warring and interpersonal difficulties. And then we see their causes. What's these causes? So in one sense, you could say he's already said it. It's our passions. But James goes in the next verses, in verse 2, to very specific two causes. First, it's prayerlessness. You see this at the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so the first problem is that they're not asking. They're not praying. You don't have these things because you're prayerless. You're just going around with each other. You're living your life, but you're not turning to God. You're coveting things that you don't have that you're not asking God for. 
You're upset and you have these trials and you're not praying about it. It's prayerless. The quarrels and problems and the passions that you have aren't being dealt with in prayer. How can they be dealt with if you're not praying? You don't have, you don't have contentment and you don't have peace because you're not asking. That's what James says to his congregation, and we apply that to our own lives. How often is that true? How often don't we live where we're just going about life, day-to-day walks, and we're not praying about the problems, we're not listing them, we're not coming before God? Some of our problems would be taken care of. In fact, many of our problems would be taken care of just by doing that. Many of the striving and quarrels that we have would be obliterated through prayer. When you have someone you're frustrated or angry with, upset with, pray for them. Pray for them and see how long your heart can truly retain that quarreling and anger towards them. When you're praying for their good. When you spend time in prayer for others, it's quite difficult to retain that nurturing and angry spirit. That's the first problem. They're not praying. The second problem, it's selfish. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So James says your first problem is that you're not praying. And then he says even if you are praying, those who are praying, you don't receive because your desire is selfish. Because the prayers and what you're asking for, what you want, is your own gain. And it's not for the honor of God. It's not for the good of your neighbor. It's for yourself. And God doesn't answer that. This is really insightful for our prayers. We can't just pray for anything. We can't just make any prayer we want. We are governed by rules. We are governed by what is right. God will answer our prayers when they are according to his will, when they're right. But when you're asking selfishly, when you're asking in, in that sin, he's not going to answer that. And that's what James says. So you're prayerless, you're selfish, and both sins are godless. Both sins are godless. The one just ignores God and doesn't pray. The other one, in a facade of seeking God, is actually seeking yourself, and that's godless as well. That's dishonoring to God. That's rejecting Him. And so they lack contentment, their passions war, they're not praying about it, and if they are, it's for their selfish gain. It's as simple as being sensitive of your own perceived inadequacies or failures so you make a living judging and highlighting the faults of others all around you. It's as simple as coveting what another has. So what does this make us? What does this make us? Where does James conclude his examination of the audience? He says it in verse 4, you adulterous people, you adulterers, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you may say, wow, James, how did you get there? First, you've called us murderers. Now you've called us adulterers. How do you figure that? James very insightfully shows that in pursuit of our selfishness, what we are actually pursuing are the passions of the world, of the passions of sin, which is a whole other mistress which is spiritual adultery. Behind the quarrelsome and angry words to each other lies adultery against God himself. It's pursuit of what the world pursues. 
It's not godly. It's not Christ-like. It's not what Christ has put before us as his example. It's friendship with the world. And as James says, friendship with the world is animosity. It's enmity against God. You can't be a friend of the world and then be God's person, be God's son. Later in this text, he talks about double-minded, the double-minded. He had done that earlier in James as well. The double-minded are those who are pursuing the world and yet claiming some sort of facade God that they worship and pray to, but that's double-minded. You can't have it both ways. You can't be married to the world and married to God himself. And if you're married to God himself, you can't then run your brother over in your words and in your angers and frustrations because to love God, you have to love your brother and sister. You see, the key to a humble walk with God is trusting in the grace, trusting in Him as the solution to our interpersonal strife. To respond in humility. It's adultery to do anything less. We have sought a different spouse to God, and that's revealed in the fighting and quarreling. You know, all the hallmarks of adultery are present in what James is saying. What do I mean? Well, prayerlessness is ignoring. It's ignoring your, your God. And in adultery, what happens is there is a, an ignoring of your spouse. There's a not seeking of your spouse. There's prayerlessness. That's an aspect of it. The second aspect, selfishness. Well, that's so obviously part of adultery. You see, the hallmarks of adultery against God are here. We're serving and living for ourselves, not Him. What makes us adulterers is friendship with the world, and this means all adulterers against God are those who seek out the world and are friends with them. And they're not little acts. No act of adultery is little. You can't just cheat on your spouse a little bit and not have it be grave. You can't just go and and kiss someone else who's not your spouse and not expect it to damage your marriage and not expect it to be even seen as a, a part of an act of adultery. You can't, you can't just go out and flirt with others. That, that isn't what married people do. And yet we do that all the time to God Himself. We flirt with the world. We kiss it a little. And we really deny James' charge that we are adulterers. This is not to say it's all on the same spectrum. James really does have in mind a unique group of double-minded so-called believers in the church who are pursuing the world and pursuing God. That is, his, you could say, his, his primary audience. But that's also for the benefit of all, even those who are faithfully following God, as we would say faithful, to know that even within us there is that adulterous spirit. So those are the causes, prayerlessness, selfishness, which makes us adulterers. And here's the solution. Verse 5 continues. It's very difficult to translate verse 5. I want to explain this. If you have another translation before you, you might get an opposite understanding of what the ESV, which is our pew Bibles, what they say. And the reason it's difficult to translate is that in the original Greek, it's difficult to determine what's the subject and what's the object. And so if you were to read like the King James Version, it would say this. And I want you all to look at your Bibles, look at the verse in the ESV as I read this so you can see the difference in how you could understand and translate this. The King James Version would say of verse 5, Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth 
to envy. And so you see what the King James does there is it makes the lusting spirit our own. It's saying that you, the spirit inside you, is lusting and envying. And so in that way of translating verse 5, it would take it to mean it's the final denouncement James is making against them. That our spirits lust to envy. Now I explain that just in case you are looking at a different translation and you see the opposite of what I'm going to say. I think the ESV translates it correctly. The ESV says in verse 5, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says... He, meaning God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Why is that important? Because I think this is the whole hinge of James' argument. He's just called them adulterers. He's just called them this. They are adulterers. They are forsaken in that sense. And then he flips it. And then he says, do you suppose it's no purpose that who God yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us? That's why in verse 6 he continues, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The answer to our adultery, the answer to our own wickedness and murderous spirit is that we have a jealous God who yearns jealously over our spirit, who yearns jealously over us and the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. James is presenting here not the final proclamation of you are so wicked, to yearn jealously against God. He's rather saying, no, because of this, because of your adultery, no, that the only answer is in the God who jealously yearns over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. And he gives more grace. This is the great treasure of this verse. James has just called us what we are. And yet, where's the answer? Adultery is the perfect word to call us and then perfectly respond in this way. The best illustration I can give to what's going on in these verses is the Old Testament example of Hosea and Gomer, the prophet Hosea who was called by God to marry a prostitute, one who continued to commit adultery against him. And yet, as you would read that text, you would see the thing that saves Gomer is the jealous love of her husband, the jealous love of Hosea, who is imaging God himself. That's the whole point. The picture of God to his unfaithful bride, his people. And it's the jealousy of God that pursues us. It's the jealousy of God that is the answer to these things. It's not in us. And so we could almost say it as, it's a good thing. That for us adulterous people, we have a God who yearns jealousy over us. Now that doesn't mean we can continue to sin. James talks about that God pursues the humble. It is those he has truly remade and renewed by his spirit, those who humbly pursue him, those who have the fear of the Lord. It is those that God is jealous for, his true bride in essence. doesn't mean we just live the way we want and continue... To commit adultery, no true believer would. True believers, when presented with this truth, yearn jealously for God in return, even in in acknowledging their own sin. James continues to apply, then, what his audience ought to do in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, submitting to God in this context is to humbly listen, to seek him, to pray to him, to pursue selflessness and rather selfishness, to resist the devil, to cleanse. This is how you submit to God. This is how you humble yourselves before him. And verse 8 is especially encouraging. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you don't hear anything else from this message, hear that. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There is no more gracious response to an adulterous bride than that. To those spouses who have committed adultery and are ashamed and desire nothing else but the love of their spouse, And that's the position we're in. Here we are, we're called adulterers, and we know it. And we desire nothing less than the love, again, of our spouse. And what does God say? Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. That is the healing balm. That's what we need. We are faithless, so unfaithful. But draw near to me, says God, and I will draw near to you. This ought to be the motto of our life. This ought to structure all of our prayers. This ought to be the ringing bell in our minds as we live, draw near to the Lord, and he will draw near to me. Our life is one of drawing near, drawing near to him. James finishes his application in verses 11 and 12. You see he goes back to proclaiming to them not to be controlled by a selfish, jealous spirit, not to judge others is what he talks about. You can kind of put together a a situation of the audience. We see that there's this bitter, selfish spirit among them, giving rise to quarrels and disputes. And these disputes were apparently conducted with not a restraint of the tongue, with a misuse of the tongue, as he's talked about earlier in chapter 3. And then he also is probably including the cursings that we see in chapter 3, verse 10. And then denunciations of one another, which we see in our text here, But this behavior is nothing else than manifesting a worldly spirit to judge one another in our quarrels. So you see verses 11 and 12 continue his thought progression. Yes, he's answered it, and now he's going back and he's saying, see, because of this, don't judge one another. Don't set yourself up as a judge, which is very natural in quarreling and striving. You think yourself righteous. What James isn't saying here, James isn't saying that we can't call sin, sin, that we can't be discerning, that we can't point at others and say that's wrong, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about an eternal judgment, that we're judging others as unworthy. We're judging others of breaking the law, and what we're not doing is using God's law. We're using our own created piety. We're using our own interpretation of this law. What we think is right, and we don't have clear standing on God's word, we take that and then say, you're judged because of that. And what James is saying then is, you've set yourself up as the judge. You set yourself up as higher than God's law itself. You can't be a judge and a doer of the law. We're supposed to be doers of the law. You can't be that and then judge us and judge others, is what James is saying. So he's saying, extend this treatment of humility and love to one another, even in the quarrels and striving. Confess your sin. That's a big aspect of it. He talks about be wretched and mourn and weep in the earlier verses. What he's saying there is for these 
his audience who were living this quarrelsome way, put your pride to rest. Weep instead of laugh. Mourn instead of be fold of joy. Be wretched. Be wretched. Why? Because you know you're adulterers. But James isn't just saying be wretched for that sake. He's saying confess. Turn to the Lord. This is exactly what we are called to do. James reproves here those who are under the pretense of holiness, condemning their brothers, setting themselves up in the place of the divine law, and he won't have that. So you see his whole thought process here in this text. There's interpersonal strife. The fellowship of God has been broken, and what's the cause of it? It's worldliness, it's passions, it's our own desires, it's our own sin, making us murderers and adulterers. But what's the answer? To draw near to God, to humble ourselves and submit to Him. Our interpersonal strife is the result of prayerlessness and selfishness, which makes us nothing less than adulterers. The only solution is a humble drawing near to the God who gives more grace through Christ. That's James' message. That encapsulates everything he's saying in this portion of Scripture. And so, as we close today, be aware of your sin. We must. You can't read this text and not walk away with the understanding we are murderers, and we are adulterers, and we do seek the world. But go where James leads. He doesn't leave them there. He gives them an application. And that application is that know that there is a jealous God who yearns over his people and the spirit he's put in them. He is the jealous husband who will redeem his bride. He is the one with whom we look to for cleansing and repentance. And he's the one with whom we draw near through Christ. God can't deny you when you approach him in Christ. That's not to say the Father wishes to deny us. It's to rather give us assurance, grace, and peace to know that every time we approach him and draw near in his Son, he draws near to us. That's a universal statement. There's no qualifier there. Every time you draw near to him in prayer, Every time you draw near to him in devotions, every time you seek him and are drawing near to him through the power of the Spirit, he draws near to us. It's not wasted effort. What a word for us adulterers to hear that healing balm. Let's go before our Lord and thank him for this great blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are overwhelmed by the grace of your word. We're overwhelmed by our own sin to know that we do quarrel. We are proud. We are selfish. We are so often prayerless. And yet, you are a faithful husband who redeems an unfaithful bride. You are he who says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. All of this is a grace All of this is beyond what we could accomplish ourselves. And so we see your love there, but we also pray we would pick up James' application that we would seek you, knowing that you pursue the humble, that we would be humble, 
that we would confess our sins, that in the appropriate ways we would be wretched and mourn and weep over our sin, that we would not judge one another nor place ourselves as the giver of the law, but rather those who are judged under the law and yet redeemed by the judge himself. We praise you for this truth. May it structure our lives individually, our families, and especially our churches in this church. May our fellowship not be broken by quarrels and striving, but instead be characterized by humility and drawing near to you. We pray this in Christ's name.